Imagine having an idea for a product and specifically a new gin. You team up with a couple of mates and then within six years, it gets named the world's best gin, as in the best gin on the entire planet. This is what happened to Matt Jones, one of the co-founders of Four Pillars Gin. In 2019, six years after it was founded, Four Pillars Gin was named the world's leading gin producer by the IWSC in London. And they repeated this in 2020, making Australia's favourite gin officially the world's best. As well as being one of the three co-founders of Four Pillars Gin, Matt Jones is also its brand director. Matt's job is to make sure that the work his partners do on creating the world's best gin translates to the rest of the brand. But what does that look like? And how do you create a world-renowned alcohol brand in less than a decade? And why is Matt so obsessed with aesthetics? My name is Dr. Amantha Imba. I'm an organisational psychologist and the founder of behavioural science consultancy Inventium. And this is How I Work, a show about how to help you do your best work. An important philosophy at Four Pillars Gin is that they say they are makers, not marketers. Given Matt's role is that of brand director, I naturally assume this would entail some marketing. So why doesn't Matt consider himself a marketer? There are probably lots of answers to that question. Not all of them are good ones. Um, a, a short one is I'm probably a little bit of a contrarian. I probably like to to get into a get into a debate, but but often that debate is in service of getting people to think. And I guess I coined the phrase "makers, not marketers," because I wanted people to think about what it was that made Four Pillars successful. And that really went back to why we started the the gin journey, you know, back in 2012 when we started to think about it and 2013 when we launched. We did it because we felt it was possible to make better gin here in Australia. We felt that Australia offered some of the best possible conditions for making gin. The great thing about gin is it has to be distilled on a canvas of juniper. But after juniper, you can kind of go – you can go nuts. You can go wherever you want. You can distill what you want and you can play with flavor. You can play with natural, indigenous botanicals and ingredients. And, and nowhere has a stronger flavor culture. Nowhere has greater access to different produce, different ingredients, different botanicals than, than here in Australia. So we, we, you kind of couldn't grow a better, a, a, a better sort of laboratory setting for making gin than Australia. This is the perfect place to do it. And so as a result, we thought, you know what? We can truly make better gin. We can't just make better Australian gin. We can make some of the world's best gin here in Australia. But we'll only do that if we get up every day really charged and and focused with that energy around making the most of the opportunity of making gin here. And to do that, we've got to have this maker mindset. We've got to have this mindset that says, A, every day we, we get up trying to make a better product and B, if we were down to our last thousand bucks, what would we spend that on? And the answer should be making, not marketing. So it was not about saying we will never do marketing because, of course, that would be daft. It would be silly to make a better product, a different product, and then not creatively 
tell people about that creatively, share that with the world. The point was to really think about our source of differentiation and to say that's going to come from the quality of what we make, not the cleverness of how we market. One aspect of of Four Pillars, I think that really stands out, and I was just having a little pop onto your website before we started uh recording is something you believe is really undervalued when it comes to brand, which is aesthetics. And I'd love to know, like, what does this term mean to you? And how do you really infuse it into your thinking around the Four Pillars brand? It's a great question. And it is going to reveal what a hypocrite (laughs) (laughs) Having said that we're makers, not marketers, I'm going to talk about a key piece of marketing, which is sort of design and imagery and aesthetics and all those things. Look, the, the, the logic is pretty straightforward. And I, you're right. I do think it is it is something that people consistently undervalue and underinvest in. And I'll tell you why in a second. But I'll first of all tell you why I think it's important for Four Pillars. The logic is pretty straightforward. If we are makers, not marketers, or, or to put it another way, if we are makers first and only then are we marketers, then the, the the thought process was that the best way to get people to appreciate what we're making is to get them as close as we can to the process of making gin. It's it's sort of the, the opposite of, you know, the old cliche about if you ever saw a butcher make a sausage, you'd never eat a sausage again. Well, we want people to see the sausage being made. We want people to get up close and personal with the craft of making gin because if they do, they'll realize just how differentiated, just how fantastic the way that Cameron and the team at Four Pillars Distillery in Hillsville make gin is. But you can't force everyone, especially as you grow, as you grow beyond that hardcore early adopter audience and you start to reach a more mainstream consumer, you know, albeit it's a, it's a mainstream consumer who can afford to spend 80, 90 bucks on a bottle of gin, but nonetheless, they're, they're not that hardcore early adopter audience. You're growing into a more of a mainstream audience. You can't force all of them to care as much as you do about the craft, about the attention to detail. But what you can do is, is lay down clues, is give them a sense of the craft, a sense of the attention to detail, a sense of how much you care about everything you do. And, if, and one of the ways that we can do that is with the attention to detail we we apply to other areas, to design, to print, to photography, imagery, aesthetics, film, always making sure that what's coming through is this sense of care, this sense of quality, this sense of craft. The second way it's really, really important, I think, that this this sense of aesthetics is we are in a fundamentally sensory business. We're in an irrational business. We're in a business of of people feeling good, not just about the the flavor of the drink they make, the flavor of the gin they taste, but the process of making it, the sense of they're taking care of themselves. They're treating themselves. There's a specialness to it. And so if we want to sort of evoke those feelings and those emotions and those associations, then we can't just let the liquid do the heavy lifting. We've got to help it. We've got to help it with the quality of the packaging, the quality of the the imagery, the photography again. So for, for all those reasons, both the, the, the way that we are conveying our craft values, the way that we're communicating something really important and inherent to Four Pillars, which is that attention to detail, but also the way that we're trying to evoke those same emotions, those same sensory cues that we want the liquid and the drink to, for all those reasons, it's it's really, really important to us. And how do you do that, though, in terms of having this really high standard with 
aesthetics. I mean, you know, it's one thing to have brand guidelines that are followed by, you know, everyone that works on visual aspects of the brand. But like, how do you like uphold this really high standard to have everything be, you know, so aesthetically like pleasing and beautiful? Um, well, first of all, it's nice to hear you say that. Um, secondly, I, I guess there's, there's different ways into that answer. You know, one is how do you do it mechanically? Well, you've got to work with good people and that's not just about having people in the business with, with great um, a great eye, great understanding of how the brand should show up in the world, great attention to detail, but not everyone has that in their business and that's okay. Um, you've got to have great partners. We work with phenomenal photographers, stylists. We've got an incredible design and content agency, people I've been working with for, for more than a decade now who we we trust with our brand's life. Um, but, but a different way to answer that question is you've got to value it. You've got to allocate both budget and time and attention to that. You've got to not allow good enough to be good enough. And I think this goes to this kind of bigger conversation about understanding what are the things that are going to move the needle for your business and move the needle for your brand and making sure that having identified those things, you you invest appropriately in them and you don't underinvest in them because we are all enormously constrained, aren't we, in terms of not just the budgets we've got, but the time we have, the emotional energy we have. And it's very easy to allow something to get to a point of good enough, to that sense of that will do, and to go, oh, thank goodness, that's another thing ticked off the list. And in some areas, that will be good enough for your business. But if if these are things that are going to help to define your business, to differentiate your brand, then good enough is not going to cut it. And so for us, the decision early on was if Cameron, who's one of my co-founders, was going to make the best gin in the world and Stu, the third co-founder, was going to go and tell the best stories in the world and, and go and knock down doors and, and do all the amazing stuff he does building relationships, then one of the contributions I could make from a, from a brand point of view was to make sure that every touch point of that liquid and that story was was as good as it could be and working as hard as it could. And that is a an exhausting effort. That is a decision that you make to not let things slide past you that clearly could be better and to surround yourself with people who when you sort of run out of a little bit of energy and go oh I don't know I think maybe that design's good enough they go I don't think it is I think we need to push again. Now of course related to everything that you've been describing is creativity and, and creativity is a really significant part of the DNA of four pillars and I would love to know like at a practical level, how how do you promote and foster creativity with within the business and you know within yourself as well? Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there, isn't there? Um, and it's such an interesting word. Like I've I've had a an evolving relationship, I think, with the with the idea of creativity. There have been moments in my career when I've felt like creativity is almost sort of a term that's thrown around too liberally and, and it becomes too democratic and, and actually the act of creativity and, and sort of the act of creative value or value creation through creativity should 
belong to those people with with a real sense of expertise and training in that space. And then there've been other times when I felt that it does need to be more democratized and, and open to a, a, a wider range of contributions. I, I think we're probably somewhere in the middle of that that spectrum at Four Pillars. The, the first thing to say is that we are just incredibly lucky. Um, but then, as the cliche goes, I think we, we probably do a good job of making our own luck. So I'll unpack that a bit. Where we're incredibly lucky is primarily with Cameron. So Cameron is the co-founder who really matters. He is the, well, he always reminds us there's no such thing as a former Olympian. He is the Olympian who ran for Australia in Atlanta. He was a 400-meter runner. He was in the relay team there, made the semifinals. So he's a really determined, relentless guy. He does not settle when he feels there's something better to be done. And his determination and his relentlessness Turns out he doesn't just apply that to doing the same thing better. He applies that to doing different things. So with that, he's incredibly curious. He's got this great palette and he's just got fantastic ideas. And probably back when I was in a creative agency, they're not ideas that I would have recognized as big ideas. Instead, what they are are small ideas that he executes beautifully. So I'll give you an example. He grew up one of five boys, the youngest of five brothers. And every um, every Derby Day, every Victorian Derby Day, the, 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 the weekend before Melbourne Cup, his mum would get all the boys into the kitchen and she'd get them to help make the Christmas puddings for that year. And his dad would be in the, in the living room losing money on the races. And, and Cameron really loved this tradition growing up. And so he's got three daughters. And so he sort of had the same tradition with them and got them all into the kitchen on Derby Day to make Christmas puddings. And he's doing this back in 2015, so only a couple of years into the Four Pillars journey. And he's looking at the ingredient list and he's still using his mum's 1968 Woman's Weekly Christmas pudding recipe. And he's looking at all the ingredients and he's going, these things would all distill. And so without telling me and Stu, which is probably one of the ingredients of creativity in this case, he just goes down the distillery that afternoon. He gets the girls to make a couple of extra puddings and he goes down the distillery that afternoon and he distills those Christmas puddings. And what results is a gin with a lot of those Christmas pudding flavors. But then I said, he's, he's quite uncompromising and he tastes it. And he's like, well, it's quite delicious. And I suspect Amantha that eight out of 10 distillers who'd had that idea at that point would have settled. But Cameron thought to himself, but Christmas is about indulgence and this isn't indulgence enough. It's not rich enough. And he thought, wait a minute, there was some, barrels that a mate who works in winery, because again, we, we're in the Yarra Valley. And so we've got lots of friends in the wine industry and a mate in the wine industry had showed up with this pair of hundred year old barrels a few weeks before. And these barrels had come over from Scotland 80 years ago. They'd been William Grant's whiskey barrels 80 years ago. They came to Australia. They ended up in Rutherglen. They'd spent 80 years aging musket. They were kind of they'd run out of their They'd done their, done their time in musket. And this guy said to Cameron, would you like them? And he was like, well, maybe. So there were these 200-year-old musket barrels lying around. And Cameron thought, well, what would happen if I aged the distilled Christmas pudding gin in those 100-year-old musket barrels? 
And so he does that. And then, you know, eight months later, he tastes it. And he's like, yeah, it's nearly there. And so he then goes to a friend who works up um, in Rutherglen and says, can I get some fresh muscat? I just want to add a little bit of tweak to the, the, the finish of that, to, to add that extra bit of richness. And only at that point, when he had sort of explored and played and done all of this in the shadows, did he come to me and Stu and say, guys, I've made this, I think it's Christmas gin. I think it smells like gin, but tastes like Christmas. What do you think? And so no permission, just a sense of following his instincts, good instincts, not then settling when it was okay, but really pushing to a point where he was happy and he was proud. And there are plenty of experiments that never made it to that, to that benchmark and never got to that level. So we never saw them. But then I think to further answer your question, that's when the second act of creativity comes in to go, right, well, we've got this product that Cameron's created. It seems quite delicious. It's got a wonderful story behind it. How do we now do justice to it? So I then started to think, well, if this is an embodiment of Christmas and it's a family tradition of Cameron's, how could we make it an embodiment of Christmas for Four Pillars and a family tradition, not just for the Four Pillars family, but for our family of customers? And I thought, well, maybe the way that we do that is by making it a present. And if it's a present, it should be wrapped. So rather than wrapping it in a traditional label and lots of branding, what if we wrap it in a piece of art? And so we had the idea of commissioning original pieces of art from Australian artists who um, could show us their take on the Australian Christmas experience, not the cold Northern Hemisphere Christmas experience, but the beautiful, hot, sunny, sweaty Christmas experience that I've learned to love because um, I'm from the UK originally, but I've, you know, over 20 years, I've learned to love our version of Christmas. And so then that's the second act of creativity. How do we contextualize? How do we wrap this up? And then I think the last piece, the, you know, the little, little lessons from, from our Christmas gin journey, to make that work, to be able to sell back to my partners the idea of creating a Four Pillars product with no Four Pillars branding on it, I needed to have control. So the artist I went to in year one was not the best artist I could find or the best artist I could dream of or the most high-profile artist. It's an artist I could trust. So I went to a friend who did beautiful work, but also where there was a trust-based relationship where I could really say, look, this is what I need. This is this is where I need it to go. This is the timeline I've got to meet because I've got to get this in early. And so that balance of big idea and control. So from Cameron, that sense of following his instincts and following his nose, trusting his gut, which you only get to do because you've mastered your craft, because you've got an understanding in his case of how flavor comes together. So that mastery of your craft gives you, even if you're not a hugely creative person, that opportunity to then listen to your gut more. And, and that I think is something really important about creativity at Four Pillars. It's intrinsic, not extrinsic. It comes primarily from what we want to make based on our understanding of our craft, our passion for gin, our passion for flavor, our mastery of Australian botanicals. In this case, Cameron following his gut. It then comes, I think we're in a world where great execution beats great big ideas badly executed. So then it comes from that willingness to really push at that idea and perfect that idea and get it to a point where you think it deserves a wider audience. And then I think it comes from that desire and that determination to push at every other touch point of that, which goes back to that conversation about product 
experience aesthetics and go, well, look, this product, this, this, this creative idea for a product is fantastic, but it's not finished until we've addressed every other touch point. And then that willingness and that ability to then go outside of your business and say, who can add value to this? In the case of Christmas gin, it was artists. And we've, we've had you know, seven years of wonderful experiences working with artists first, ones we knew, and increasingly ones that we've sought out because we've admired their work and built a great relationship with. So I, I think our experience is unique, Amantha, because it's, it's gin, because every experience is unique. But I think there are relatable, I hope, lessons for every business one about you know that the more you master your craft the more you can trust your instincts the second about then recognizing that the power of the idea on paper is not what's going to help you win it's going to be the power of the idea executed and realized and that in turn relies on your ability to apply that real uncompromising attention to detail but the last thing is also just just a willingness to back instincts and to back ideas that are intrinsic. And you and I talked a bit earlier in this podcast about things that are perhaps undervalued in business today. Um, and I think instinct is one of them. Intrinsic innovation. I think if you've got a really strong sense of your purpose, a really strong sense of the value that you create and could create in the world. I think if you've got a really great handle on your craft or your source of expertise or what, what it is that differentiates you in, in your field, then I think you should maybe trust your instincts a little bit more and, and not always feel the need to question what does our customer want next? Because often they don't know because they haven't seen it. And um, I think that's that's something I'm really proud of at Four Pillars, that we've empowered first the founder group with our different backgrounds and interests, but increasingly our whole company to trust their instincts and to bring forward ideas that are not always anchored in evidence, not always anchored in, well, this is what customers are asking for, but instead anchored in a sense of Four Pillars-ness. What should Four Pillars do next? What would the right thing be for us to do and to make and, and what would it look like if we saw that through and, and really fully committed to it? We will be back with Matt soon, talking about the frameworks he uses to make decisions. If you're looking for more tips to improve the way that you work, I write a short fortnightly newsletter that contains three cool things that I've discovered that help me work better, ranging from software and gadgets that I'm loving through to interesting research findings. You can sign up for that at howiwork.co. That's howiwork.co. So an important part of creativity is decision-making, and it sounds like you guys have made some brilliant decisions on which ideas to move forward. And I've heard that you're a fan of creating frameworks for decisions and, and you like lists of four. Can you tell me about this, how you create these frameworks for decision-making? Well, that does sound very grown up and, <laughs> and, 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 and perhaps more structured, but look, it's, it's true. I, I think, Yeah, this is a great question. I, I think at the heart of it, what we're talking about is sort of the codification of instincts um, and making sure that that what you don't want to do is create frameworks that are so 
compelling that you can talk yourself into bad decisions. But what you do want to do, I think, is 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 just capture what it is that that is going to make you successful, and sometimes retrospectively, what has made you successful. So, frameworks that we've built at Four Pillars include um, the Four Pillars of Our Purpose. Something we don't talk about really at all to our external customers, but we talk about a lot internally. What are the reasons why we exist, why we do these things, why we matter in the world? And they are distilling cocktails, modern Australia and community. And we've got things to say about all of them. But at the heart of it, there are these four pillars of why we exist that, that we can come back to. And so why that's helpful is it gives people a lens that they can use to talk about their ideas. So when they come to the table and say, hey, I've got this great idea for a four pillars home in Sydney, and I don't think we need another distillery, but I've looked at their purpose and I'm thinking about that second pillar to elevate and celebrate the craft of the cocktail. As much as the distillery is a wonderful place, the distillery is really about the first pillar of our purpose to, to elevate the craft of distilling gin. What if we built a home in Sydney that was all about pillar number two, celebrating the craft of a great cocktail? And, and, and then that gives them a language. It gives them a, something to hang that idea from that then makes sense of it in the business and allows us to explore it more and, and give it give it a center of gravity. Um, another structure or another little list of four are the, the four experience principles, which really are about how we want people to feel about us, that we want people to experience four pillars as the most delicious, most creative, most well-designed, and just most fun brand and gin. And so that that relationship between deliciousness and creativity and design and fun helps give us guardrails. So as we're executing, if I go back to the Four Pillars Laboratory in, in Sydney and in Surrey Hills, which is this beautiful space anchored around this incredible bar where the bartender and the drink are sort of are sitting across this blue, juniper blue concrete bar all on the same plane. It's almost like a beautiful sushi counter in Tokyo where, you know, chef and diner are unified around the space, except in this case, it's the bartender and the drinker. Now, the reality is, as we executed that, we could have got too serious. You know, we worked with this incredible interior architect um, called Yasmin Ganim uh, and and created this, this great space, but we could have got too serious about the architecture and the craft of drinks making, too invested in the, the creativity and the design strands of our, our sort of experience principles. So then you come back and you, you pull back to, yeah, but is it going to be delicious? Is it going to be fun? Are people going to be relaxed enough to enjoy their drink and feel like they're having a good time? And so what these frameworks do, you know, some give you language to talk about ideas and how they fit within the business. Some give you guardrails around design and, and making sure that you're striking that right balance. Um, you know, I try and make sure that when we write our marketing strategies or when we build our growth strategies for a market like the UK, that it comes down to typically four key principles. I think it, it's it's about giving people language that helps them to articulate why they think things are right. What these frameworks should not become is a way of bullying people into accepting ideas that are fundamentally bad. And I think, you know, I've worked a lot in the in the corporate space over the years, and sometimes you see these sort of values frameworks or these behaviors, and, and the language around them is so flexible 
that they can almost become this 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 coverall that could support any idea, no matter how bad. And I think that's the danger of frameworks. So the other thing I'd say is that a framework is only as good as the story it allows you to tell. So as much as I like business to have these these frameworks and these lists, what I always want to be behind them are stories. And, and something I really encourage our team to do is to start presentations and to start meetings and to start proposals of new ideas with telling the story of why this is the right thing to do and going back to those first principles and, and using narrative language. I'm a big admirer of, of that that sort of narrative approach that Amazon has taken, that, that Bezos took to, to making sure that decisions at Amazon were, were well considered. I mean, we don't write the same sort of three-page long-form essays about our ideas, but I still try and encourage that same sense of storytelling. So framework's useful, but behind those frameworks – needs to be a sense of narrative and story and, and frameworks should help people develop and anchor their proposals and their designs and their thinking, but they shouldn't be able to be used as a tool to sort of ram bad ideas through the business, if you see what I mean. Well, Matt, I have loved listening to your stories about Four Pillars and for people that are wanting to engage with Four Pillars, but maybe haven't. Um, what are some good ways for people to do that? Well, we write beautiful emails, so they can always jump onto fourpillarsgin.com and, and sign up to be on Wilma's list. There's so much that we haven't talked about today. Um, you know, one of one of those things is that sense of of building community with your customers and treating your customers as family. And, and I'd like to think that we do that over over our emails. We're not too spammy. We're not too salesy. We're really just trying to include people on the on the journey and tell them the stories of, of what we're doing, whether it's, you know, why our stills are named after our mums or a new product we've released or a little, you know, small batch collaboration with an interesting brand that, that is going to be here today and gone tomorrow. So probably the best way is to sign up to get emails. But equally, you know, I'm always happy to get messages from folks and, and chat on LinkedIn. I'm very easy to find. Matt Jones, Four Pillars, we'll, we'll get you there. Follow us on Instagram. But, but And most importantly of all, come and say hi in Hillsville or if you can't make it to Hillsville, come and say hi in Sydney and, and um, you know, come and have a drink and a tasting and, and see what we do in, uh, in the real world. Amazing, Matt. Well, thank you so much for your time and, and sharing what has gone on behind the scenes around how Four Pillars has been created and has gone from, gosh, like is it nine years ago being born to very quickly becoming the world's best gin brand. So thank you. Thanks, Samantha. Great to chat. I loved hearing about Matt's obsession with aesthetics. It's something that made me think about my own company, Inventium, where we do care a lot about the way things look as is hopefully obvious if you check out our website at inventium.com.au. But I don't think we obsess over it enough. I mean, most of what we produce is quite beautiful, I think. But then there'll be details that we miss, like workshop handouts that are in old branding or that just don't look as schmick. Anyway, this interview made me take stock and think about the impact that paying more attention to these details could have on people's perceptions of the Inventium brand. How I Work is produced by Inventium with production support from Deadset Studios. The producer for this episode was Liam Reardon. And thank you to Martin Nimba, who does the audio mix for every episode and makes everything sound so much better than it would have otherwise. See you next time.